Before we begin our Torah study today, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. I want to build on the message of last week, which began with a passage from Isaiah in Isaiah 49, where the Lord says it's too small a thing to only save the remnant of Israel. I want to also make you a light to the nations. And it's important that we understand that God is committed to the salvation of the Jewish people, the spiritual restoration, revival, and well-being of the Jewish people, and that through that process, he wants to do even more, and that is he wants to revive the nations. He wants to restore the nations, and he knows that the nations really need help. How many of you can confirm the world's in trouble, the world is broken, and people need God's help? And God's plan is to use the Jewish people who have been restored through Messiah together with Gentiles who have been restored to Messiah, to make peace with each other, and then to bring that good news to the whole world. So the inclusion of the Gentiles is not connected to an exclusion of the Jewish people. It's not that, Jew, that Jews are done away with, and it's not that God has this giant Vitamix blender and he's going to throw in the Jews and the Ukrainians and the Italians and the Americans. <laughs> and then push that button and blenderize us. Reminds me of that basimatic. God's not going to use the basimatic on the people and just blend us into this mess, indistinguishable mess. He will preserve families, ethnicities, but he will drive out the enmity, and nations will no longer learn to make war against one another. And as Paul writes to the, to the Romans, there will be a time when the Jewish people will come into fullness and the Gentiles will come into fullness through Messiah, but in order for each of them to come into fullness, they will be dependent on the other's good ministry and mercy to them. And so we need each other. So look around at someone sitting next to you or nearby, smile at them and say, I need you. We need you. We need you. We need you. You're not an, just an option. You're necessary. We need you. I know there's some husbands and wives saying, well, it's about time I heard it. <laughs> it's good to practice, guys. It's good to practice, ladies, at home. To look each other in the eye, get that clear heart where you can look each other in the eye. You know, that's one of the, one of the ways that God um, clarifies the condition of a relationship, if you can sit together with your spouse 
and not just make googly eyes, though those, that's good, but to, to look in your spouse's eyes and to communicate eye to eye and to maintain gaze, it, it, it's an indication of open hearts to each other. And if you can't look each other in the eye because of shame or anger or whatever, it, it really points you to what needs to be cleaned up and healed. So I encourage you to practice that. Um, it, it will benefit you in so many ways. Beautiful. You get that for free. It's not even in the notes. <laughs> this week's Torah portion, I want to connect to the Isaiah passage, but it's going to take some time. I want to build on it. And I want to build the connection, but I want to start with a theme from Numbers 32, which is in our readings, which describes the allocation of lands to the children of Israel according to their tribes. And so each tribe would be given a certain amount of land, and those who had more people in it would be given more land, those with less would be given less. And then among the tribes, they would figure out who got which part of their allocation. But there arose a question, which we read about in Numbers 32, about the tribes of Reuben and Gad, and that is because they proposed that they would stay on the eastern side of the Jordan rather than cross over the Jordan into uh, the greater land of promise. And there was a question about their motivation, their loyalty, uh, because they wanted to remain on the eastern side of the Jordan. In fact, some people thought the reason they want to stay on the eastern side is they don't want to have to endure the difficulty of any battles or war that might arise for the people who go into the promised land. So the loyalty of Reuben and Gad was raised as a question. And the loyalty had two dimensions. The first dimension is this, are you loyal to the God of Israel? And the second question was, are you loyal to the people Israel? Now, in our day and in our society, you ask a question like that, you, people make promises. Oh yeah, I promise I'll be loyal. But in, in the scripture, we read that they weren't satisfied with promises. They wanted demonstrations. And for the questions, will they remain faithful to God and to the other tribes, they wanted demonstrations of faithfulness and loyalty. And so they said, well, here's one of the ways that you can demonstrate you will be loyal. You have to serve in the military, and you have to be in the military of greater Israel and serve in such a way that you protect and defend all the other tribes. And the tribes of Reuben and Gad agreed that they would accept that responsibility. That was an interesting way of demonstrating loyalty. In the modern state of Israel, uh, universal um, service in the IDF is expected. There are controversial exemptions for yeshiva bokers, for those who are studying in yeshiva, and the ultra-Orthodox who are doing this. And there are many in society who are saying, if you're gonna be loyal to God, okay, but to be loyal to the people means you need to serve in the military as well. 
It's an interesting controversy that is as yet unresolved, even though the status quo is one thing. The question was, would they seek the well-being of other tribes and not just their own well-being? What was their motivation? And so the requirement was that Reuben and Gad actually participate in everything necessary for the other tribes to make their settlements um, established before they took care of their own. They had to be willing to sacrifice their own uh, priorities and well-being for the sake of the greater community. And that was a test that demonstrated whether they were really committed to everyone or just to themselves. And Reuben and Gad agreed, and because of that, the allocations on the eastern side of the Jordan River were permitted uh, under those very specific conditions. So it raised the question about loyalty, and this question had to do with uh, two tribes of Israel. Think about that. How many tribes total uh, are given land? Twelve tribes. And so one-sixth, one-sixth had questionable loyalty to God and to one another. Okay, park that. Just remember, Jews questioning Jews. Okay? But, but now park that idea. Now, let's connect this to one person, Caleb, or Kalev, who God said could go into the promised land with Joshua. And he, he and Joshua, Kalev and Joshua, were two out of 12 spies, right? And they were the only two who God found loyal to him and the people. And they were the only two of the 12 spies who were allowed to go into the promised land. But it was even more than that. Let's read in this week's Torah portion, Numbers 32, verses 11 and 12. Because they have not followed me wholeheartedly, not one of those who were 20 years old or more when they came up out of Egypt will see the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So do you get that? God is making an, uh, an assessment and an evaluation of the guys who were 20 and up. Uh, as an example, how many people in this room came to Jacksonville when you were 20 or older? Raise your hands. Lots of us. So they were saying to Israel, all you who came out of Egypt and you were 20 or older, we don't trust you to go into the land. That's what God was saying. You are not trustworthy, and the reason you're not trustworthy is you haven't been wholehearted with me. And if you look at it, the wholeheartedness with God was also connected with uh, suspicions that the same people had about the other people, the leaders that God had raised up. So you have your problems with the, the tribes and the elders and the leaders, the princes, even the Kohanim at times, saying, we don't trust the leaders, we don't trust Moses, we don't trust Aaron and Miriam, we don't trust anyone who God has put in charge. We should be in charge. And so God made this uh, broad assessment. Okay, I've evaluated your performance, 
on the loyalty scale, and I'm not grading on a curve, and guys, those of you 20s and older, you failed. Now, as a result, you won't go into the promised land. Now, that, I just want to note, that doesn't mean that they go to hell, though it may have felt like it, but it simply means that God said, you are not going to be worthy to settle this land. I want people who are wholehearted, and you've crossed the line. You've demonstrated already. You're not wholehearted to me and to one another, to the greater people. You've sought um, other gods, and you've sought your own will against the good of everyone else. So, those of you 20 years old and over. Now, imagine you're in the crowd, and you hear that, and you're 20 or older. I think there would be a universal sense of disappointment. But the sentence continues. And it's interesting how the Lord forms his words. Sometimes he says something so strongly at the beginning that you faint before you hear the rest of it. (laughs) Or you close your ears, it's like, ah! But here was the rest. And this is very important also. For those of you who tend to be rigid people, and who also are not very scrupulous or diligent in your academic work. Oh, this is a, I don't think any are in the room, but some of you podcast listeners, no. (laughs) (laughs) There are people who dishonestly break down uh, ideas in the scriptures and then take a part and make that part the whole truth when it's not the whole truth. And I'll show you how someone can do it with these two verses. They say, well, the Bible says not one is going to go in. See? So not one is going to go in. But the rest of the sentence says, not one, except. Except. Say that word with me. Except. So God had exceptions in mind when he said not one is going to go in. So if you don't listen to everything God has to say and you only parse out one section and then you break it into fragments and you say that's what God said, that fragment, you have been uh, a bad student of the word. If you were an attorney, you would lose your case. If you were an academic and you were trying to make uh, a point in a dissertation or a a thesis, you would fail. As a student of God's word, you would fail. So it's important to read what God has to say and to give him time to say everything. And sometimes he does it in one sentence, sometimes he does it in one book, and sometimes he does it in the whole schema of the Bible. And so you can't break it apart. Not one except... Caleb, Caleb, son of Yephunneh, the Kenizzite, or Kenezi, and Joshua, son of Nun, for they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Say that word with me, wholeheartedly. God was looking for wholehearted followers, 
And he said, of these 20 years and up, I didn't find any, except, except Caleb and Joshua. Now here's what's interesting. Caleb is identified as being the son of Yefunah, but also of the Kenizzites. And the Kenizzites, from everything else we can determine, are probably Edomites, not Israelites. Really. Isn't that interesting? And there are some efforts to, um, to prove that the Kenizzites here weren't the Edomites, the descendants of Kenez. Um, but the fact that there has been some uh, effort to disprove it is evidence that the text is troubling in this particular way. You understand why? Because you don't disprove something that's absent from the text. But it, it appears that Kenaz and the Kenazim were Edomites. So that makes it even more interesting, doesn't it? That God is saying, none of you who uh, came out are going to go in. Except two guys, Joshua and Caleb. And I, I, can say, I, I can say this, that maybe it's 99 plus percent certain that Kalev is from the Edomites. We'll say that. So there's a small possibility that he's not. But you can say for sure that the scripture does not make it certain that he's an Israelite. And so if someone says, well, he's an Israelite, you can't make that statement with confidence. There's too much evidence in the scriptures. We'll look at just one key passage in a minute. But there's too much to, to make that statement. So let's just, for the sake of, uh, of, of today, let's consider Kalev the Edomite, who is now going into the promised land for Israel. So here's what's interesting, is he... Kalev absolutely fit into the people Israel. So at the very moment that there's a question about the loyalty of two out of 12 of the tribes who are Israelites, there's no question about the loyalty of one guy, Kalev, who is an Edomite. It's absolutely clear he's wholehearted with God and he's wholehearted with the people. Do you see that? That's provocative in the right way. Kalev is loyal to God, he's loyal to the people, and it appears later um, that Kalev was actually a man without a tribe, but he was adopted into the tribe of Judah, and he was allocated land among the tribe of Judah. So. Uh, to see this, let's fast forward to Joshua, uh, chapter 15, verse 13. 
It says, in accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, a portion in Judah. Now, I want you to think about that. Every tribe was given its portion, and every member of the tribe automatically received a portion within the tribal allocation, correct? So why this detail? Why this detail? It wouldn't actually make any sense to say, yeah, and Caleb got a portion in Judah if he was already a native-born member of the tribe of Judah. It just wouldn't make any sense. Why call that out in particular? The reason to call it out is because he wasn't a native-born. He was a Edomite, but he had fit into the tribe of Judah to the point that elsewhere we'll see, we won't look at it today, but elsewhere we can see in the scriptures that the, the tribe of Judah actually selected Caleb to be one of their representatives uh, for certain important matters with the rest of the tribal councils. And so imagine this, Caleb, one of the spies, one of the two faithful spies, was not an Israelite, he was an Edomite, but he was given a land allocation in the promised land with the Israelites. Now, consider that. Think about that. And I want to connect that to a prophecy. Some of you are interested in end-time prophecies. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 21. We'll look at a few verses here. I want to connect this uh, passage in Ezekiel to the Torah portion that we're reading about today and the greater theme that we're looking at, Ezekiel talks about land allocations as well. But his time frame is this. It's an end of days uh, perspective when Israel has the full measure of land that has been promised her. So it's far beyond what uh, the land of Israel, the state of Israel currently inhabits, and it will require some kind of uh, divine intervention for that to be established. But it expressly and explicitly addresses the question here of Gentiles in that land and what's to, what to do with them. It says this, you are to divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. Same instruction as is given in the portion we're reading today, prior to Israel going into the land. You are to allot it as an inheritance for yourselves, but then here's the expansion. And for the foreigners residing among you and who have children. Interesting combination. The foreigners, the, the Hebrew word is gerim, which means those who are sojourning with you but are not native born. Those who um, are immigrants, you could call them resident immigrants, or um, there are other ways of describing them, but they are not native-born. But it's not, it's not just that they are such people, they are living with you in your midst, and they have children. So what this means is these are people who have chosen to raise families together with the Jewish people. Do you see that? in the land at a time when they don't get 
landed rights. So they're not landed gentry. They are immigrants who can't own land, but now at this moment, God says, allocate land to them too. You are to consider them the same way as you consider native-born Israelites. Along with you, they are to be allocated an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Now, this is also important. Among the tribes of Israel. Pay attention to that. The Gentiles do not go to a Gentile ghetto. The Gentiles aren't second-class citizens or unwelcome guests in the land. The Gentiles aren't told like the Jews were told when they went to Egypt, well, you can live with us as long as you don't live with us. You can live in Goshen, because we don't want to live there. And you can do your thing in that Jewish ghetto in Egypt. But there's no ghetto here for the Gentiles. It's important to grasp that. You are to consider them the same as native-born Israelites. Even though they're not native-born Israelites, they have the same rights. Why? Because they've been faithful to God and faithful to the people. They fit in and had children. So it's nothing against those who don't have children, it's simply saying the demonstration of loyalty that comes through bringing your families up with the Jewish people at great cost and risk, that demonstration means something to the Lord. And he says, yeah, you could, you could do other things, but that's only what I'm looking at. Because when you raise your children in this way, they get united with the people. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? So in this eschatological future, the Jews and the Gentiles are living together in unity in the land of Israel. Now that's a prophetic plan that God has. And it says in verse 23, in whatever tribe a foreigner resides, you see it's not a ghetto, they're living tribe by tribe, there you are to give them their inheritance, declares the sovereign Lord. To me, it's a fascinating picture. It, it tells us of where things are going. But prophecy is powerful. Prophecy some of you think prophecy is only about future events, but that's not the case. Sometimes prophecy is given so that we can understand past events and so that we can understand actually priorities now and ways of walking now under today's current conditions, but they won't apply in the future. An example of such prophecy uh, was the prophecy of Jonah to Nineveh, uh, that they would perish, that the people would perish. Um, but they didn't. Why? They repented. They turned to the Lord. But that wasn't Jonah's plan. He wasn't happy for it. He wasn't predicting the future. He was speaking a word of warning that had implied uh, within it, 
there's a possibility if you repent and turn to God, this won't happen. And people repented, they turned to God, and that prophecy wasn't fulfilled. That did not make Jonah a false prophet, even though he was a disappointed prophet. What it made was the nature of prophecy more clear to us that prophecy is given not so that we can learn how to prophesy the way Nostradamus does, did, and the way fortune tellers do, and the way clairvoyants do, trying to know the future, but rather so that we can know the heart of God and the conditions that are important to God, so that we can fulfill those conditions, and also so that we can understand what on earth is going on around us. This prophecy in Ezekiel helps Israel aim towards something. And then it will live by that, I believe. Now, there's one other aspect of prophecy that's so important here, and that is it is as, as prophecy in the future will be fulfilled in full, along the way it's often fulfilled in part, and thus Caleb is an example. Do you get that? Caleb being trustworthy, Caleb being allocated land in the promised land, Caleb becoming part of Judah even though he's not from the tribe of Judah. This is an anticipation of what can happen and gives us a model, a prophetic anticipation and example in the same way that a messianic synagogue can anticipate what God is doing prophetically. In this way, we can say, we want to be a home for Jewish people who have become disciples of Yeshua, but we also want to be a home for all Jewish people who are wondering and questioning, is there a God? And is Yeshua the Messiah? And what to do? But we also want to be a home to Gentiles who want to join together with the Jewish people. And we want to be all those things, not just one of them. And then, as we do that, we practice something that points to the, the eschatological future. I've had the experience, many have had, where I have discovered that some of our best Jews are Gentiles. <laughs> With a greater dedication to the Jewish people, the God of Israel, learning Hebrew, doing Jewish things. And um, thank God. Thank God for such people. And God uses them to accomplish the, the instruction Paul gave in Romans to provoke the Jewish people to envy. And it, it does provoke to envy. However, since this is family, we can also say that Gentiles who become part of the Messianic movement are the most vulnerable to going off the deep end. <laughs> Yeah, and, and making this mishmash of Jewish traditions, <laughs> I'm just talking honest while we're here. Um, it, it's true. And taking 
extra-biblical Jewish traditions and elevating them to such a place that they actually displace faith in Yeshua and faithfulness to God and to one another. And, and rarely does this happen with, uh, with people who are born Jewish. It, it's okay that we talk like this. Okay, because it, it's good to talk honest. But it's important to understand something. God has a plan. And Isaiah said it this way, it's too small a thing to only limit yourselves to the restoration of the remnant of Israel. That's important, but it's not the limitation. It's also necessary to have a prophetic vision for what God wants to do through such people and with such people on behalf of all the nations of the world. When you read the story of Yeshua, his birth, Luke 2.32, you'll see that there was a word that he would be not only um, the glory of his people Israel, but alike for the nations. And likewise, in Acts 26.23, you'll read how the apostles made it clear that they understood that their call to the Jewish people was foundational, but it was supplemented by their call of for all of Israel to be a light to the world. And so these fit together, and we get to practice it. So we are a prophetic anticipation here in this congregation of what God wants to do and how he wants to do it. And here's what we have to learn, and that is how to love each other with all of our differences. Jews and Gentiles, had to be a home for all kinds of Jews and a home for all kinds of Gentiles who are united together according to the calling of Messiah that touches us in this way. And so we get to practice not living in ghettos where you hang out only with the people who agree with you and look like you and talk like you and think like you or some narrow combination of that, but you have fellowship with all kinds of people in the congregation. That's it. So, welcome to the eschatological future. Some of you are gonna go, have to look up eschatological. Good. In the weeks to come, I'm gonna be talking about seeing the invisible. And to get ready for that, you should look up in the dictionary the word adumbration. I'm not, no, I'm not going to spell it. Look it up, figure it out, do your best, and then I'll explain when we talk about it. So would you please rise? We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. And some of you are saying, I, I didn't come to synagogue for an English lesson. <laughs> oh, yes, you did. Yiva rechecha adonai the Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Before you... Shh. 
Before you uh, go away, let's give a warm welcome back to Rabbi Yuri and Rabbi Tzanina, back from their vacation. And David. I, I don't think they're in the room. I think they're with the, the kids. But when you go to the Shalom Center, grab them and smile at them and say nice things. Shabbat Shalom.